At Urban Farm Podcast, we are all about education, and April is Foliar Feeding Month. Have you heard of it? It is a super simple application of spraying liquid organic fertilizer on your trees and garden plants. The leaves, branches, and trunks are incredible at absorbing nutrients. And if your soil isn't great or your pH is off, foliar feeding is a quick and long-lasting fix to get your plants the nutrients they need. Want to learn more? Join us for our free online webinar on how to apply this amazing process to your gardens and fruit trees. Visit urbanfarm.org to sign up. That's urbanfarm.org. Greetings, urban farmers, gardeners, and healthy food visionaries. Farmer Greg here, and welcome to the 468th episode of the Urban Farm Podcast, where every day we work together to educate and inspire you to become part of your food revolution. Today on our podcast, we have someone who is fascinated with an underappreciated vegetable. We're talking with Chris Smith about okra. Chris is a garden writer and homesteading consultant who serves on the board of the People's Seed. When he is not okraing, he can sometimes be found at So True Seed, an Asheville-based open-pollinated seed company. His book, The Whole Okra, a seed to stem celebration by our friends at Chelsea Green Publishing has just been released and is available. Welcome to the show today, Chris. Are you ready to rock okra? Very ready. Excellent. So I shared a bit about you. Can you fill in the blanks and share more about the path you took to get where you're at today? Yeah, for sure. I, I think pretty quickly your listeners will understand that I'm not American. And as an okra lover, they may be surprised that I'm not so from the southeast of America, which is where most of the okra is eaten around here. Right. You know, I always get asked, how on earth did a British guy come to write a book on okra? And so that's maybe a good place to start. Well, actually, my question would be, how does anybody come to write a book on okra? Because it is so <laughs> obscure. Is, it is so obscure. You know, when you do a market analysis on books on okra, then you got a pretty open field. Oh, that, that is the case. <laughs> but I did not choose okra because there was no book competition. That, that would not be true. It just was serendipitous that that happened to be the case. So not much okra grown in England, a little bit too cool, right. uh, and not much of an okra culture there. I had visited America in 2006 on a, an actual kayaking trip to the southeast, and I had this like terrible, deep-fried, oozy, greasy, nasty fried okra in a greasy spoon in Clayton, Georgia. And actually, it was another British friend, I think, was playing a trick on us. We were visiting him, and he like pushed across this bowl of goo and kind of giggled and said, you should try the local delicacy. <laughs> um, okay. So I, 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 and I, I don't think I'm alone there. I, if I'm speaking to a lot of people, you know, a lot of people have terrible first impressions when it comes to okra. Yeah. And you can definitely cook it badly. I know I've, I've done that. You cooked it badly? I've definitely cooked it badly. Most people have had it cooked badly for other people. Like, you know, they're like, I had it at this place or I had it at that place. Uh -huh. But yeah, it's, you know, you can get it wrong for sure. But when you get it right, it's, it's delicious. But it, it took some time for me to come back around to okra. Um, I actually married a, my fiance is from Columbia, South Carolina. So I, a mother married a Southern girl. And at our bridal shower, a friend gave us a dried okra pod. And I, I'm a gardener and a seed saver. And so the story that came with these seeds that she gave us encased in the okra pod kind of weighed heavy on me. I was like, wow, this, these seeds have this deep history. They came from Rosman, North Carolina, grown by a family farmer. Uh, and now they've been passed to me. And I felt 
quite a weight of responsibility around those seeds. I was like, if I plant these, then I'm the continuation of the story of those seeds, which is is a pretty important thing to me and my connection with food. Uh, So I was very much compelled to grow these okra seeds, and it just gave me this whole new appreciation of okra because suddenly it was my okra in my garden, and I was able to look up recipes and start digging into all the uh, different aspects and uses of okra. And and the more I dug, the more I realized okra is truly incredible and has got a pretty bad rap in this country. Well, and the big reason it's got a bad rap is because so many of us have gotten a bad rap with it. True, yeah. So so my whole thing is to... It's kind of like a rebranding exercise for okra. Like, give okra a second try, have it done right, and realize that just because you've not cooked it well or it's not being cooked well for you, that's not okra's fault. That's our fault. So if we can change the ways we we interact with okra, then it's got so much potential. Oh, no kidding. So tell me something curious about okra. One of my big things that I like to explore across all aspects of food is this idea of a seed to stem mentality. So it's kind of like tail to tip in the meat industry, but with plants. Mm -hmm. And and we tend to find, you know, you're a farmer, backyard gardeners, we put a lot of effort into growing food. It's, It's no easy task. And to then only harvest and use a small percentage of that crop to then compost or throw away the rest seems kind of like criminal to me. So I'm like, well, if you can if you can eat the leaves or you can press the seeds for an oil or you can eat the flowers, you know, we should really be maximizing the harvests from these plants uh, if they've got them to offer. And when you look at okra, it's like my champion crop of the seed to stem movement. It's like you can eat every single part of it and the parts that are too fibrous to really ingest, even though they're technically edible, are used as like a high quality fiber. You can make paper from it. it there's just the whole plant is absolutely useful in some way, shape, or form. Wow. And so you planted those original seeds? Yeah. So Rosman, I started calling it um, Rosman Wedding because it, it was from Rosman, North Carolina, and it was given to me as a wedding present. And so I still have those seeds going, but uh, like the reality is that, that that's not the best okra out there in the world. Last year, I grew 76 different varieties of okra just to explore the vast varietal differences between them all. 76 varieties? Yes. And that's wow. just scratching the surface. But uh, last year, 76 varieties. And, and when you think about varietal diversity, or, or my concern with having collected all these seeds and people sending me all these seeds was, oh, they're just going to be different variations of Clemson spineless, which is the classic green okra, or red burgundy, which is the classic red. But truly, to walk into my variety trial was just to be stunned by the diversity out there. There was different sized plants, different shaped leaves, obviously all the colors from palest white through to deepest red and the greens and the variations there. It was it was really stunning to see that each of those varieties was truly different. Wow. You actually used the word okra culture and I thought that that kind of clicked into my brain. So let's talk about cultivation. For sure, yeah. One of the nice things about okra is that it's it's really quite easy to grow and I'm often stunned by one of these complaints that I hear. It's funny, when you go around telling people you're writing a book about okra, it seems to be an open license for everyone to come up to you and say all the things that they hate about okra. And um, I don't know what that is about. but um, So in terms of people that are growing okra, one of the complaints I hear all the time is, it's, I don't grow it because it's too productive. And, you know, as farmers, that seems to be the most ridiculous thing anybody could say. Like, you're not growing <laughs> right? this plant 
because it's too productive. And I, I think what they mean, I, I kind of understand it to some extent. So when, you, when you're growing okra, it loves the heat and it'll grow really fast if it's hot and wet at the same time. Mm-hmm. It's, it's totally drought tolerant because it's got this crazy root network. It's got a, a super deep four and a half foot tap root. It's got like three feet radius on all sides of this real dense lateral root network. So it's more than capable of surviving drought, but it'll be much more productive if it's got a decent water supply. And so it just, once it starts podding, then those pods over time grow really fast. And after about five or six days, they start to become fibrous. So if you've not experienced okra before, then there's good pods when they're small and tender, and Mm -hmm. then they get longer and more fibrous and a fibrous pod can totally ruin a dish. So when people talk about it being too productive, what they're talking about is they're not able to stay on top of the harvest, which you know c- can be mitigated and managed in a few different ways. W- one is by harvesting the flowers, which maybe we'll talk about in a little bit, but the flowers are a really interesting and useful food crop. And so that, that's just a good way to slow down the pod production of the plant because okra is... It has these perfect flowers, so it's not like a squash plant where you can... Well, they're perfect as in they're beautiful, but they're perfect botanically as well. Yeah. So with when you eat squash flowers, you're eating the male flowers and the female is still able to produce fruit. But when you eat an okra flower, you're sacrificing the pod production, which is a good way to combat that complaint of, oh my God, there's too much okra being grown on this plant. Well, and you know, there's this level of abundance in nature that I always love addressing. One of the other things you said a little while ago is you said you could actually make oil from the seeds, okra oil. That Have you done that? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I, I guess this all it all fits into the whole, we've we got to shift the way we're looking at this plant uh, is what I'm trying to get people to capture onto. If, if you're just saying, all I want from this plant are these three inch to four inch long tender pods. And if I don't get that, I'm not very happy. Then I can see why you're underappreciating okra. But if you start looking at all the different potential harvests at all the different points in the growth of the okra, then we're opening up this just like massive world of culinary potential. And one of those things are when the pods get big. So once those pods do go fibrous, most people are just like hitting themselves in the head, being annoyed with themselves that they've missed that pod. But I'm like, no, don't worry about it. You can either cut off that pod and then shell it like a green bean. And the immature seeds on the inside are these beautiful, tender little white seeds that are just, they've got a pretty good protein content, kind of like an immature soybean. And you can cook them up. I have worked with a chef that turned them into like an Israeli style couscous and that kind of thing. Wow. So those, those seeds are or a good starting point if the pods have just gone slightly over. And then the cool thing with our chef, this is Chef Clark Barlow out of North Carolina. He harvests all those immature white seeds, and then he takes the external fibrous pod, dehydrates it, grinds it into a powder, and uses that as a cornstarch substitute because it's got a lot of flavor in it, and it's got the thickening properties of the okra. So he can throw that into soups and stews and other things to, to thicken up the dish with an okra pod flower, effectively. <laughs> wow. We've just missed out on this one. You've missed out on this one. And I feel like America's missed out on this one. It took a British guy that knew nothing about okra to come across <laughs> and just, right? honestly, like a child, like a child, I've approached okra with, with wide-eyed innocence. 
and no cultural stereotypes to hinder me. And I've just, and yeah, there's so many, so many cool things. So the oil that you asked about, after you've gone past that like green but fibrous stage, the pods will continue to mature. They can get quite big. I've got, got 16 inch pods, so pretty long pods. Wow. Uh, and they go brown and hard, woody. Totally inedible at that stage. But the seeds inside them also go kind of rock hard, like a mature, if you're doing a drying bean, then you wait for the, the pod to go brown and crispy. And then inside you've got the dried bean, which is botanically mature. You could plant it to grow more beans or more okra. But at that stage, the seed has this really interesting nutritional profile, which is pretty similar to soybeans. And you can do a whole bunch of crazy things with it. One is to press it for oil. And I, I, I have a small oil press. Edible oils are kind of like a side interest of mine. I feel like it's runs parallel with an interest in seeds uh-huh. is, you know, you get a surplus of seeds, why not press some of them for oil? But okra, the okra seed oil is kind of like a, an olive oil type. It's quite a light salad oil. It's very delicious. It's kind of hard to describe. There's, there's kind of okra-y overtones to it once you get down to the flavor. So the oil is a pretty cool crop. And I used to give presentations and say, wouldn't it be awesome if we had a, an olive oil of the South? And then about two years after my first presentation, there's a guy called Clay Oliver who's uh, won a fair few awards for his artisanal oils. He does a green peanut oil and a pecan oil. He started pressing okra seed oil, and now he sells it to high-end southern chefs, and they love it. They can't get enough of it. So it's, wow. it's you know, there's potential there, but the, the okra seed is about 150 years behind in terms of crop development for oil seed content. So the black seeded sunflower has about 50% oil content, but the okra seed only has you know, anywhere between 9 and 23% is the highest recorded one. So there's going to be some work to be done to get okra seed to catch up. To get but it, the final product is worth it. Right. To get it more oily. Get it more oily, yeah. And maybe other, you know, other considerations, if you're going to take on a breeding project, maybe the okra hull is really thick. So maybe a, a good okra oil seed would be thin hulled, high oil content, high producing in seeds so that you can grow one plant and get a large volume of seeds. These sort of considerations would go into an oil seed breeding project. Yeah. When we're going to talk seeds in a little while, because not only are you into okra, you're deep into seeds. So we'll get there in a minute. When it comes to, so cultivating, you just have some seeds, stick them in the ground. They pretty much grow on their own, even here in the desert. I would imagine they would, like I say, they, they love the heat once they're germinated, they'll grow quite happily and very quickly put out a decent root network. We're not in desert conditions in, in Western North Carolina, but I seeded my okra and then it didn't rain for three weeks and it, it grew. It was totally happy. I didn't have any irrigation or anything. It was just bone dry and hot for three weeks. And, and yeah, the okra just even in seedling form didn't seem to mind. It didn't grow very quick, but it, it didn't mind. But it was doing this root thing. And as soon as it rained, I got real fast growth. Nice. So the other thing with the, um, the cultivation, I don't know what it's like in Arizona, but out here in the, the average summer garden, you know, the tomatoes will be dying of one of 
a hundred different types of disease and vine borers will be killing all the squash and cabbage worms will be eating all the brassicas and all the greens will be bolting. You know, it's just a, you know, we're just holding on and hoping we can eat something at the end of the season. Right. But amid all that, the okra just keeps on growing. If you keep harvesting those pods, it'll just keep growing and flowering and potting and growing and flowering and potting. And while there's a few diseases that will, will get it, compared to every single other crop I grow in my garden, the okra just, it just keeps on growing. It's truly, truly phenomenal as a plant that's able to produce such a high amount of edible material with very little inputs uh, and very little stress factors on it. Yeah, that's my memory of it is when I've grown it in the past, because I've been growing here at the urban farm for 30, 30 seasons now. And when I have grown it, it's, it's grow, when it gets hot, it grows fast and it produces, as you said earlier, a lot of pods. Yeah, yeah, really, really a lot of pods. So if we're talking about some level of, of food security, uh-huh. then it would definitely be one to keep in your back pocket because, you know, with, with without much effort, you can grow a ton of food. And that, that's only when we're talking about the pods. You know, all these other additional harvests that we can get off okra as well just makes it even more of a solid contender in that realm of food security. Yeah. So harvesting, it seems to me when I've harvested them in the past, and this may be on the more mature pods, there's some spines on it, is there not? Yeah, yeah. That's You kind of just hit the nail on the on the second biggest complaint. One is it's too productive, and this, which is a silly complaint. And the second one is that it's spiny and irritating. And that's a very valid complaint. It, it is... I did a test this last year, so I had my all my 76 different varieties. I only had six plants of each variety, but that was still about 500 row feet of okra. And I wanted to truly experience what the okra itch was all about. And so I harvested my entire field with short sleeves and no gloves. Oh, my gosh. By, by, I, it was the stupidest thing I've ever done. It, towards the end of that harvest, I was like just basically running down the row, ignoring all the okra and like clenching my teeth like a rabid badger or something. And driving the five minutes home, my knuckles were white on my steering wheel. It was just, it was so incredibly intense that the okra itch is real. Don't let anyone tell you otherwise. And, and what that basically is, is the, the pods and the leaves and sometimes the stem are covered in these trichomes. And those trichomes are like, they're, they're an irritant. And they're there really as a, a natural defense for the okra. Probably one of the reasons it's so resistant to a lot of the pests that we have when they've done side-by-side studies and looked at trichome density on the leaves, then the plants with the highest trichome density are the more resistant to most of the pests out there. So it's not just us that don't like the okra itch, it's the pests too. So you've got to kind of take that into account uh, and definitely wear gloves, definitely wear long sleeves and just try. I, I, most people out here harvest really early in the morning because, you know, if you go out into the field at noon and it's 90 degrees out and you're wearing, like you put your hood up on your hoodie and you've got your long sleeves on your gloves, you're just, you're just sweating yeah. horribly while you... So most people I know just get up super early and that's what I was doing, and, and harvest before the sun comes up. And that's that's kind of bearable, but obviously not the most pleasant harvesting experience to be had. The okra tingle, what did you call it? The okra itch. So did the okra itch, does that go into the kitchen with you once you've got the pods harvested? It goes into the kitchen until they're cooked. 
So yes, but but I guess what when you look at seed varieties, so when you go out and buy buy some okra to grow, then there's a whole bunch of varieties that are described as spineless, and then there's some varieties that are described as velvet. And so what we see are three main pod characteristics, which persist to some extent. But so we have pods that still blatantly have spines on them, so they haven't had very good selection or breeding work to breed out the spines and so they're still irritating until you cook them and then as soon as you cook them those spines go away then we have the spineless varieties which are like super smooth to the touch you can't tell there's no hairiness on them at all and you can eat them raw and you can handle them without any problems at all although the leaves of those varieties might still be irritating and then the third category and these were developed in the late 1800s are the the velvets there's a red velvet a green velvet and a white velvet okra. And they actually still have the trichomes, but instead of being spiny, they kind of been bred into this kind of downy-like soft hair, I guess. You can kind of run your finger along them and they feel soft. Oh, interesting. And they're, they're not irritating at all. And again, those hairs disappear as soon as you cook them. Wow. And so let's talk about cooking and mitigating the slime because that I know that's an experience that I've had is that, you know, these pods are slimy. And what do you do with that? <laughs> yeah, what you do with that? Uh, I'm, I'm going to encourage you and everybody else to be open-minded to the embracing of the slime. So that's one way you could go. You can go, okay, this is, this is just slime. This is just like polysaccharides that are thick and glucky and you, let's, let's embrace the slime. And when we look at the origin of okra, it, it's most likely domesticated in Ethiopia, and we see a lot of okra uh, culinary culture in, in Nigeria and then in West Africa, and, and there's a lot of really cool cuisine to pull from from the African continent. And a lot of them, they, they embrace the slime. You read recipes, like Jessica Harris has a cookbook called the Africa Cookbook, and she just talks about mashing the pods into a gluey mass and then celebrating that slime by using it to mix in like scallions and corn and tomatoes and summer squash to make these like just self-adhesive patties that you can then shallow fry. And they're just phenomenally delicious. And that's that's embracing the slime. Yeah. So there's, that's one route you could go. But I, I also appreciate that there's some dishes where you don't want like the gloop to be stringing off your spoon and so when we look at that mucilage and how it works then there's a few there's a few culinary tricks that can be applied and you if you've spent any time eating okra then this should set off some like alarm bells in your head you're like oh this all makes sense now so acid will cut through the slime so if you've ever had pickled okra then the the vinegar acid makes them a very low slime thing to eat. So you can have okra pods sitting in a jar of pickles for a year and they won't come out very slimy. If you were to put okra in water for like even a few hours, it'll just be dripping with slime. So that vinegar really cuts through the slime. And then across the entire okra eating world, we find dishes cropping up that pair okra and tomatoes. So okra and tomato stews and all the... The gumbos often have tomatoes in, and the Indian dishes often have tomatoes and okra together. Uh, the Mediterranean dishes, the African dishes, all of them have these okra-tomato combos, and the acidity of the tomatoes helps mitigate the slime. There's some cultures that will use orange juice or lime or lemon juice 
all for the same reason, that, that pairing with something that's got a high acid content will cut through the slime. So that's one great way to go. The other way that we see used in the States is high heat. So if you deep fry your okra and serve it quickly, like a fresh, then that high heat of the oil will cut through the slime, as opposed to boiling it in a soup or a gumbo where that sliminess is is only exposed to 100 Celsius, and that's not hot enough to really cut through the slime. In fact, it kind of enhances it to some extent, and we use that mucilage to thicken the gumbo. It's kind of enjoy, enjoyed at that stage. So yeah, you've got to fall into one or two camps, or you can embrace both. You either embrace it or mitigate it, but both, both are good options. Nice. So weird things about okra? Weird things, since we're on the topic of slime, we should take it one stage further. You can embrace the slime, you can mitigate the slime, or you can extract the slime. So that idea of putting your sliced okra pods in water and just leaving it there and then straining off the pods basically leaves you with really, really thick water. I call it water with personality. <laughs> but um, there's some evidence in, in Turkish culture that they use this to treat type, type 2 diabetes. At one of my presentations recently, I spoke to a, a lady came up to me and said her doctor told her to do this every single day. She drinks okra slime every day to lower her blood sugar levels as a treatment for type 2 diabetes. So there's a lot of, you know, we, we already celebrate aloe as a real healthy thing to consume. And then things like chia seed and flaxseed, you know, all, all these things with mucilaginous properties to them, we celebrate, but we don't celebrate it in okra. But okra has those similar compounds that can do similar things. So um, my wife and I were fond of, of making okra slime water last year and doing that. But I, I took it one stage further. And I have a, I, at the time she was three years old, I have a three-year-old and a, and a newborn. And I persuaded the three-year-old and my wife to come to my experimental okra spa treatment. I had to pump premise foot massages, but basically I took okra pods, I boiled them in water, then I blended the okra pods with the water to make this thick green slime. And then I smeared it on their faces and they, well, actually my, my three-year-old ran off straight away and said, yuck. But my wife was really wanted that foot massage. So she stayed there for the whole 10 minutes and then rinsed it off. And the idea was that it was an extremely hydrating face mask. And this was based on a reference I'd read from a Zimbabwean kind of cosmetic book where they have a very dry climate there. So this might work in Arizona. You oh, can yeah. Like kick off a new, a new uh, cosmetic industry. But basically, yeah, that the same idea of that mucilage, it's very hydrating. It, the okra is drought tolerant because it creates its own slime in, in effect. It doesn't dehydrate easily. And we can consume this for our insides to be a good like internal moisturizing kind of cleanse. But you can also use it on your skin to rehydrate the skin. So I kind of played around with some of that. And in my book, I've got this awesome picture of my three-year-old and my wife lying on the floor with green slime all over their face. And I cut out two slices of okra pods to put on their eyes. They look like, <laughs> look like cucumbers, but with okra pods. Yeah. So it was pretty cute. Wow. You did have a lot to write about, didn't you? <laughs> I got carried away at times. So tell me uh, quickly about the book. Yeah, so hopefully like just from this you know, short chat so far, you get an idea that basically I, I fell in love with okra and then I got carried away and just like wanted to explore and experience everything I could in and around okra. And a, a lot of it, 
I, I have to tell people that I there's very little in this book that I actually made up myself, like in terms of like just straight up creativity. Most of it, I, I did a lot of reading of 1800s newspaper articles and journals and agricultural texts from the 1800s. And uh, there's a lot of research papers done more experimental in the early 1900s. So I, I just did a lot of reading around that. And so much information is out there that just inspired all these experiments like with just those one, I read the book of Tempe and in that whole biblical book, there's one line that says, okra seeds could make a good Tempe. And that's all it says. And I can't find a reference to okra seed Tempe anywhere else in the world, but it just happens that Asheville has a, a Tempe company. And I went to them with a jar of okra seeds and said, hey, let's make some okra seed Tempe. And they did. And so we made okra seed Tempe with the local company. So there was a lot of that kind of thing. The book is full of kind of my research, but then building on with experiments and adventuring and ideas of the whole plant. It's called the whole okra, a seed to stem celebration. And it, it's just that we're, we're celebrating the entire plant and exploring the use of the, the pods and the slime and the leaves and the flowers and the stalk and the seeds uh, and everything you want to know about okra is in this book. And probably lots of stuff that you don't want to know about okra. Yeah, exactly. It is called The Whole Okra, A Seed to Stem Celebration by Chris Smith and published by our friends at Chelsea Green Publishing. So you're really into seeds. You volunteer at So True Seeds. You're on the board at The People's Seed, and you have the Utopian Seed Project that you've recently started. Give me a couple of minutes on your seed work, and then we'll have you come back and share in a whole other podcast about it. Yeah, for sure. So actually, I'm I'm employed at SoTruSeed. I'm I'm the communications and marketing manager at SoTruSeed, which is awesome because I get to do a whole lot of the, the garden writing and the educational side of stuff, which I really enjoy. And then the People Seed is a wonderful organization that's very new in the southeast, and they are basically saying, "Hey, look, the we we need more innovative seed breeding in the southeast to make like re- revitalize the industry." so that we can have crops that are climate resilient and adapted and better nutrition and better flavor. And we need to shift the focus in plant breeding. So they're, they're doing really good work there. So True Seed itself is an open pollinated seed company. So we're all about seed saving. We really want people to have some level of seed sovereignty. So the knowledge and ability to save their own seeds for their own sustainable food systems. And then the Utopian Seed Project, there's a lot of seed seed things here. The Utopian Seed Project is kind of like a spinoff of So True Seed. So they let me step away from So True Seed and set up this nonprofit as the executive director. And it kind of was fun because it, it was born out of all the okra trials that I did last year. So those 76 varieties, I became a bit of an okra pusher. I went to all these local businesses and was like, hey, you should try making this or you should do this or hey, chef, you should try this. And so we had this whole community level exploration and experimentation around okra. And it was really energizing and fun. And people were talking about okra and getting excited about okra. And it was just really amazing. And that kind of became the base inspiration for this utopian sea project, 
where we were like, hey, it's not just okra that has massive varietal diversity and untapped potential. It's pretty much every food crop. We've been narrowed into these monocultures and we experienced that through the supermarket system. Let's let's run in the other direction. Let's grow, you know, uh, 50 different varieties of corn and then let's find out what's good about all those different varieties and then let's find about what, what are all the traditional methods of preparing and making and eating and using corn. Uh, and we can do that for all the crops. So this year we have eight different crop types in the ground and we're kind of doing the same thing that we did with okra but for all the different crops so it's really exciting to kind of celebrate diversity in food and farming and explore the deep cultural roots behind that wow how cool is that and are you familiar with rocky mountain seed alliance yeah yeah a little bit yeah cool Uh, well bill mcdormand and bell star are my partners on our seed school online program and they're also the executive directors over at rocky mountain seed alliance so cool right Yeah, I'm going to shift on you, and I'd like for you to talk about a time you failed, how you overcame that failure, and what you learned from it. It's hard to pick one failure, because kind of one of my, my personal things is that you know, failing is part of creativity. You, you learn that as a writer, you learn that as a, as a gardener. But I was trying to work out, like, when, when did I learn that the first in my life? And I think I was, this may not have been the first time, I'm sure I failed before this, but when I was about 15 or 16, I tried to canoe the entire Leeds to Liverpool canal, which links Liverpool, England to Leeds, England. And it's about 127 miles long. And I wanted to do it one go with no, no stopping within 48 hours. And there was a whole bunch of locks along the way where you had to like drag your canoe around these locks and it was just totally crazy. And I had three other people doing it with me and it was, it was just an epic failure. We got to like the second night of paddling and I was still a kid and we were like falling asleep as we were paddling and paddling into the wall. And it was just like, it was an epic failure. Uh The lesson from that is it doesn't matter if it was a failure because we failed trying to succeed at doing something. And I think that's what I've taken throughout my whole life. And uh, maybe you can see that in the okra stuff. Like you've, you've got to not fear that failing in order to try and do a whole bunch of different stuff because everybody else that doesn't even try to do things, they've already failed, right? They failed without even trying. And I would much prefer to fail trying to do something <laughs> right. than just like not even thinking about it. Yeah. Um, and th- I think that's why I failed at so many things, but also I got some successes behind me. So, well, yeah, exactly. Uh, Mom used to tell me when I was younger, Greg, you got to throw a lot of mud up on the wall to see what sticks. <laughs> there you go. And yeah, the stuff that's that pretty do- much it. Yeah, and the stuff that doesn't stick, it's uh, well, you could call that a failure, or a, you could call it a learning lesson. Uh, do you want to hear about something that sticks? You talk about okra. Um, kind of. This is one of my modern failures. Uh, so. Okra leaves. You can eat the okra leaves, real high protein content, all wonderful. I had this local Indian chef who, award-winning chef, uh, Chef Marwan Arani, has a local Indian restaurant called Chaipani. And he makes these kale leaf pakoras, which are delicious. But I was like, you know, kale is a, a winter crop. You should try okra leaf pakoras as a summer crop. And it would be a really good balance in your menu. And he was like, yeah, okay, we'll do that. Bring me some okra leaves brought in some okra leaves. I obviously know nothing about making okra uh, pakoras at all. I just gave him a handful of these big old gnarly okra leaves, thinking that pakoras are deep fried. So there would be no problem with the spininess and irritation of these leaves because they're going to be plunged in hot oil. It turns out that when you make pakoras, then some of the leaves are exposed to the hot oil and some of the leaves are encased in the batter. 
And so when I checked back in on him like a week later, I was like, so how was the okra leaf pakoras? He was like, well, the flavor was good, but they were really sticky in my throat. And all the leaves that was captured in the batter just maintained the horrible irritation effect. So we talk about the okra itch. I gave this award-winning chef okra itch in his throat. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> I felt pretty bad about that. Well, and we learned, right? We learned, yeah. Yeah. So what do you consider your biggest success? I'm very proud of what I did last year. I had a newborn baby. I wrote a book and I did this huge okra trial and I have a full-time job. So last year it was like, I'm most proud that I stayed sane and married because it was kind of a, a crazy journey. And I, I came out of it the other end, super happy with what I'd done. And the thing that I really learned from that, there's kind of like two competing okra proverbs one of them is from Turkey, where they say, if you're not very happy in your family life, you should grow okra, which refers to the fact that you can spend a lot of time from your wife if you grow okra, because it takes so much time to harvest it all. Uh-huh. And so I experienced that last year. But then the other proverb is from Haiti, where they say a single finger can't eat okra, alluding to the fact that we are stronger in community when, when there's a whole group of us. And I really, I really felt supported in my, from my family and you know two young children and my wife were very supportive in all the time that I took to take on this project and, and come out the other side and then and then it was that whole project that led to the Utopian Sea project and the Utopian Sea project is what I really feel is going to you know change systems and improve food culture and and really drive change at least in our local region if not through a replicable model across the rest of the US nice so what drives you? I'm definitely driven by food. Like I love eating really tasty things. And so we like to say at Sochi Seed that seed equals food. And so my passion is definitely seeds, but there's no way you can have that passion about seeds without having the passion about food. So, you know, really working towards sustainable food systems. And I'm terrified about where we're going with our climate. And I feel like most of my decisions I make are in some ways to support a secure food system that's going to be resilient or regenerative in our climate future. Beautifully said. If you could recommend one book for our listeners, what would it be and why? I picked a book that kind of flows on from that that drive. I, I really think everybody should read this book. It's actually a New York Times bestseller. It's called Project Drawdown. And the subtitle really says what it's all about. It's the most comprehensive plan ever proposed to reverse global warming. And it's edited by Paul Hawken. So Project Drawdown is a much bigger organization that's really looking at clear and applicable ways to reverse global warming through uh, carbon emissions. And this book is just a, it's a well laid out. It's very accessible. It's not like it's, it's based in deep, deep academic research, but it's not written in that way. It's very accessible. And I just think, you know, if everyone were to read this book and just change a little bit about what they're doing in their own lives, then we might be able to, you know, change the future for the better. Yeah. Well, I actually have that book on my, uh, on my uh, nightstand, I've been reading it. It is a good one. I'm, I'm glad to hear it. So what one final piece of advice do you have for our listeners? I'm going to say that I would encourage everybody to approach their own personal food systems, whether you're growing it or eating it or supporting farmers or, or whatever you're doing to eat, because we all need to eat, 
to be open-minded, creative, and curious. And I think if people can apply that to their food systems, then it will lead to, to better choices and better food and a better world. Nice. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us on the show today, Chris. No worries. It's been lots of fun. How can our listeners find you? So True Seed is the company that I, I currently work for most of the time. And, and they're online at sotrueseed.com. And that's S-O-W. But then the Utopian Sea Project is where I'm doing a lot of this exciting new work. And, and all the trials are going up online. And that's the utopianseedproject.org. And then I'm personally fairly active on Instagram. And my handle is at blue and yellow makes. And that's also the URL for my website where I try and stay on top of putting up some blog information and links to my garden writing and that kind of thing. But I, I stay busy. But if you're interested in checking that out, then that's blueandyellowmakes.com. And I'll bet there's a story there. We'll talk about that next time you're on. <laughs> you can also find show notes from today's podcast at urbanfarm.org forward slash okra. We are your urban farming resource. You can find us on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, and everywhere podcasts are found. Also visit urbanfarm.org to find articles, webinars, courses, and more. Well, that's it for today. Thanks for joining us on the Urban Farm Podcast. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Urban Farm Podcast. Remember to listen for tips, advice, and resources to help you on your journey with urban farming. You can find us on the web at urbanfarm.org or send us an email to podcast at urbanfarm.org. In the words of Vincent Van Gogh, great things are done by a series of small things brought together. Be encouraged that with each lesson learned and skill developed, you are one step closer in the direction of your dreams. One of the first things that many of us learn when we start to garden is how to water and fertilize the soil. But there is an exception to this rule and it's called foliar feeding. You should foliar feed or water the leaves of your plant with liquid fertilizer when you want certain nutrients to be absorbed better. Not only are the leaves great at uptaking liquid fertilizer, if your soil isn't very good or your pH is off, foliar feeding can help your veggies and fruit trees quickly get the nutrients they need to thrive. If you're ready to start foliar feeding for maximum growth yields and quality, Head on over to urbanfarm.org forward slash feed the leaves to see our selection of foliar feeding products. That's urbanfarm.org forward slash feed the leaves.